Hey guys, welcome to another episode of TFL Classics Podcast, where me, Brendan, and Tommy, we talk about some classic vehicles, and today we are talking about 10 classic vehicles or semi-classic vehicles that you can get for under $5,000, and I didn't want to just find the rent, you know, the normal ones that you look for. You want to look for Miatas, and you want to look for... Corollas and things like that, but I wanted to find something that's a little more obscure, a little bit harder to find, and uh, a little more collectible. Yeah, well, i tell you what, you're never going to hear about classic Porsches on this podcast, because uh, yeah. <laughs> this is not really our world, and certainly we can't afford classic Porsches, so we are talking about attainable classics, which are fun to drive, great to look at, or a combination of both, maybe even a little bit of luxury thrown in there, and as Brendan said, some of these even threw me off my rocker a little bit, but they are pretty darn cool, and vehicles you may not necessarily necessarily think about. So Brendan, what do we have at number 10? So starting off at number 10, we were talking about the Pontiac Bonneville SSEI. Uh, there were actually two generations of the SSEI, um, both the 9th and the 10th. But today specifically, uh, I want to talk about the 10th. So what we have up there is the 9th. So a lot of people will be familiar with that. But this guy is the 10th generation SSEI. And why I picked that one is because it's a lot easier to find ones that aren't fully clapped out in your price range. Hence, this guy. Yeah, so this was built from 2000 through 2005, and it was replaced by the GXP, right? Yeah, and the thing is, the GXP, they went from a supercharged V6 in the SSEI to a North Star V8, the Cadillac-derived North Star. And I know a lot of you started quaking in your boots as soon as I said North Star because those are famous for how they are unreliable and head gasket issues. And so that's why I'm specifically focusing on the SSEI as the one to have. Now, this is a very interesting car, right? Because when I hear the word late 90s, early 2000s Pontiac Bonneville, my heart does not start shaking, right? It is not an exciting nameplate. It is a vehicle not known for being particularly sporty, but the SSEI was a fantastic option package that really brought the vehicle into performance level that made it into a sleeper. Yeah, so they took that 3800 series V6 engine that was known for being super reliable and slapped a supercharger on it, giving it 240 horsepower. Pretty cool stuff, yeah. And not only that, but you also had um, some slight handling improvements as well, as well as some slight design changes as well. But you got to figure 240 horsepower, supercharged horsepower, in a front-wheel drive Buick at the time was pretty phenomenal. Now, I had a very brief chance. I don't even ever remember this. At the auction, I drove a 98 SSEI. I do remember that, yeah. And I had no idea what it was because I, I wasn't familiar with the car at the time, but I remember getting on the back straight of this little test track, hitting the throttle. You hear that supercharger coming to life, you get this fantastic whine, and it really shoves you down the track. Yeah, and the they did make it, as you mentioned, in the Buick as the Park Avenue Ultra, but uh, the Pontiac was known for being the widest car in its segment, hence why they called it the wide track. And it was actually a relatively wide car for the time compared to, you know, like the Camrys and the other things that were in its class. And that also made it a handling machine back in the day. And not only that, but because it's so big, the seats are comfy and it's just, it's quiet to go down the road. But then when you put your pedal to the floor, it just takes off like a rocket. And that's why I love them is because they are so comfy. So you didn't sacrifice like the ride quality or any of the, uh, well, what handling there was to be had by going um, with the SSEI. Uh, what you got instead was just a big comfy cruiser that made cool supercharged noises. So you would get the Bonneville over the Park Ultra? 
I would, um, because the Bonneville handles a little bit better. So it, it kind of depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for something that handles a little bit better, maybe slightly more sporty, I'd go with the Pontiac, and I personally prefer the styling of the Pontiac. But if you're looking for something that's going to give you more of a budget Rolls-Royce experience where you're going to waft along quietly and have a little bit of power when you want, you might want to go for that Park Avenue Ultra. Now, we did want to actually back up our claims with some facts. So Brenda went out and found some ads for vehicles. Now, this is a dealer up in North Dakota, right? And it's got 192,000 miles, but it looks pretty clean. And it comes in with an asking price of just three grand on this SSCI. Yeah, and you can find them under $5,000 with much lower miles. So if that mileage scares you, which don't let it because these engines are actually pretty reliable. Reliable. Um, you, you can find them um, 120, 130,000 miles with, you know, recent uh, services on it for under 5,000 bucks all day long. So now for something a little bit different, right? We talked about a comfortable, relatively high performance classic, but the next car on our list is a little bit different. Yeah. So I wanted to go for what if somebody didn't want a comfy cruiser? They wanted to go off-roading, right? Um, a lot of people know about the Forerunners. They know about the Jeeps, but a lot of people are also sleeping on the first-gen Nissan Pathfinders, which are a super capable off-roader. Now, if you look at, like, the Gen 1 Forerunners from the 80s, those are going to be fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 in really nice shape, whereas a nice Pathfinder can be had for, like, five to 7000 The one you found here in California is just 4500 bucks, which is very, very affordable. Now, originally introduced as a two-door, but you could also get them in four-door. You could, yeah. So in 1990, they switched over to the four-door. So basically, if you get one from the 85 to 89 it's going to be a two-door if you get one 1990 to 1994 it's going to be a four-door uh, these were based off of the nissan hard body or d21 truck so this platform is called the wd21 platform um, and everybody loves those d21 trucks because they're super reliable and they just keep going and going and going and these are pretty much the same thing just with a little more usability in the back. Plus, I think they look better than the uh, truck version as well. Now, you could get them with a couple of different engines. There was a base four-cylinder, which was dirt reliable but slow as molasses at 106 horsepower. Yeah. Um, or you could option it with the three-liter V6 as well. Yeah, and those had 145 horsepower. Now, they're not as reliable, but keep in mind, you're getting the V6 from the Nissan Z back in the day. So uh, some people take these things and throw turbos on them, and they can be pretty quick little cars especially like in saudi arabia you see these with like a thousand horsepower going up the dunes pretty nuts stuff now we actually own one you owned one um yeah. ours was beige and it was an automatic but you could get them with the manual regardless of the transmission they're very very durable in the long run and super good off-road with a lot of comfort and to speak to that durability this ad that i found i don't know if you noticed the odometer says three hundred and seventy-five thousand miles on it now i know that's that's not the best deal for 4,500 bucks, but I just had to show this because I couldn't believe that something like this, and it, it still looks pretty nice, right? If you find one that's been well-maintained, don't worry so much about the miles because these are long-lasting vehicles. 100%. Yep, great choice. Not very fuel efficient. Um, now, in, in the light, by the 90s, they were kind of criticized for being a little bit antiquated and very unfuel efficient. We're talking like 15 mpg-ish with the V6. And considering you only were developing like 150 horsepower, it's not a lot. Yeah, and that just kind of goes to show you the cars that we kind of lambast today as being old-fashioned, right, tend to later on end up being future classics. I mean, think about like the Ford uh, Crown Vic you know, near the end of its 
line, people were criticizing that for how old of a design it was. But now that it's gone and you can no longer get a new one, everybody wants one, right? So next up on our list, now for something completely different, we're going across the pond to a country known for their high performance cars. You hear the three letters AMG, and you're probably thinking of some of the new Mercedes high performance models that are gonna be $100,000, $150,000. Well, certain AMG models um, can be had for five, maybe a little bit more, right? Yeah, so these are gonna be a little bit harder to find on our list. This is, in fact, the only one I could find in the country uh, under $5,000, but they can be had if you're a little bit patient and you're a little bit determined and maybe willing to travel to somewhere that's not near your locale. You can find these E55 AMGs, and this is we're talking specifically about the W210 platform because they have those two round headlights on the front, and I think it kind of mixes the best of classic Mercedes with a little bit of modern Mercedes. So the one we're looking at, four grand. Now there's one in Denver. I see a lot of them for like eight grand, seven to eight grand, but these are really potent, long-lasting vehicles. Now, the W210 replaced the really squared-off W124 Mercedes, yep. and they did have a little bit of shift in mentality at Mercedes because they were just losing money hand over fist because their cars never died. So um, they kind of went a little bit more toward cost-cutting. This was the era where we started to see a lot of rust issues, especially in some of the early 210s, right? Um, we, we started to see a lot of kind of harder, cheaper plastic in these cars. But as much as they were lambasted and disliked, they actually have provided a lot of long, durable transportation for a lot of folks. And the E55 specifically has a really durable engine. So what's the horsepower? Yeah, so these had a 5.4 liter V8 pumping out 349 horsepower and 391 pound-feet of torque. And keep in mind, this was the late 90s. They were putting out almost 400 pound-feet of torque in this machine. And... Um, it was selling for $70,000. So you're talking about quite a bit of depreciation to be able to get into one for five grand nowadays. Um, and its comp competitor back in the day was the BMW M5, just like it is nowadays, right? Uh, those M5s, however, have caught on. Everybody wants one. They're going for $20,000, $30,000 plus for a nice one. Um, but you can find these E55 AMGs for still a relatively affordable price. I want to say um, that would have been what the E39 series of M5, right? Yeah. Uh, which are, like you mentioned, it's ridiculously expensive. Um, and I think part of that too is they were a little bit more of a performance machine, sure. um, especially in terms of handling, manual transmission, right? You had that screaming exhaust note. The E55 is a little bit more of like a, a straight line performer, didn't quite have the same handling dynamics, certainly didn't have the manual. I think it was five-speed automatic only in the States at least. Yeah, well, and keep in mind for manufacturers, if you want your car to become a future collectible, stick a manual, yeah. put a manual in there because later on down the road, it's going to be way more desirable. But I would bet, <laughs> even though, so like a good E39 now is going to run you 30 grand, right? Yeah. Upwards, 40 grand, whereas this is going to run you 5 to 10K, this is probably going to be more reliable in the long run because these are just kind of tanks. Also, shout out to the ML55 AMG. Yeah, If you want absolutely. an SUV, four-wheel drive, also same engine. Really good. Yeah, and so I, I wanted to talk about why certain cars get that unreliable moniker. Are we taking a tangent here? We're, we're taking a little tangent here because, you know, how you mentioned these were thought of as a less reliable Mercedes than some of the earlier ones. And a lot of people think of certain cars uh, when they think of unreliability. Like we talked about before, the Passat W8, for example, um, got this reputation early on 
as an unreliable vehicle. And nowadays, if you join like an owner's group, which I did when I when I did own one, you'll see that there are a lot of them out there that still have two, 300,000 miles on them, and they're running great with proper maintenance. But people still parrot that old-fashioned talking point, even though they have no experience with the cars, they're just parroting what they've heard from somebody else, and that person heard it from somebody else, and they just keep saying the same thing over and over about unreliability. That's interesting. Now, so I think part of the reason that, that certain cars get that reputation is that there may be a fatal flaw in either a design aspect or maybe a not-so-fatal flaw in a part that just continues to fail, right? Um, and, and it's that one issue that kind of cements the reputation of the vehicle, even if the rest of the car was okay, right? So, like, for example, um, BMW 335s from, like, the late 2000s, those engines will go hundreds of thousands of miles. The bottom ends are super strong. The valve trains are okay, but, like, they had issues with high-pressure fuel pumps and turbos. And those two things will fail, and they will continue to fail, but that really led the car to get a reputation for unreliability. We see that a lot with some of the older Mini products too, right? So um, it's not that they're unwarranted, it's just that there's certain items which have become known failure points over the years. And oftentimes once those are addressed, the rest of the car can be more reliable. Now the question is, how many failure points are there? So right. for example, like the Audi Allroad, the first generation Allroad, the C5, fantastic car, right, to look at. But you had failure points in not only the suspension, which yep. had a 100% failure rate, but you also had issues with the turbochargers on the 2.7 twin turbo. You had transmission issues. And these were issues that were so unbelievably and ungodly expensive to fix that the car reputation was cemented. Um, and then you start talking about electrical issues too, which are a little bit harder. Now, a lot of the reason that people get this evidence, right, is just anecdotal. Exactly. Yeah, like, and, and that's my main, my main point that I wanted to make on this too is don't just take that moniker of oh this car is unreliable and discount it completely from what you're looking for because if a car has been properly maintained and it's still on the road after 20 30 years and it's running good when you go and look at it it's generally probably going to be fairly reliable for you because a lot of the unreliability of these cars came early on in their ownership and they got that uh, reputation early on. So the cars that are still on the road today tend to actually be pretty good cars to buy. Well, the question you have to ask yourself there is like, um, how much maintenance is like an acceptable amount of maintenance? Like sure. an 80 series Land Cruiser will go 200,000 miles with no maintenance, whereas a BMW X5 e, e, the first gen, would go 200,000 miles with some more maintenance, right? And if that's kept up on, then it's okay. It's deferred maintenance that kills you. The other thing I want to talk about is certain brands have a reputation. So like, let's take Land Rover. Yeah. And a lot of that was cemented in reality. So for like a sure. Discovery 2, had head gaskets that would fail, which would overheat the engine, slip the cylinder liners out of the aluminum block. And if that didn't fail, you had um, issues with the drive shafts exploding and taking out the transmission. And there were just like known issues that made them very expensive to keep on the road. But then from 06 through 09, Land Rover had um, a model called the LR3, and specifically those three, four years are extremely reliable. The yep. engines were good. The, uh, the, the drive trays were good. Um, they had a couple issues with the air suspension, which were addressed for pretty cheap, and they will go and go and go, and then later on they had more issues. So it's also worth noting that not, not everything from Land Rover has that horrible reputation. There are models that are good. You just have to do your research and find those models. Absolutely. And it goes the same with just about any manufacturer, right? It's, you know, more modern BMWs are less reliable than old BMWs, but you'll hear some people say like, oh, a BMW is unreliable. But 
you can find actually really good BMWs out there, for example. Sure. Yeah. 100%. But anyway, sorry. No, sorry to go off tangents. on tangent. <laughs> well, let's keep going a little bit with our discussion because next up on the list, a very affordable vehicle, um, and not a vehicle that a lot of people think are classics, but the Gen 1 Ford Explorer. Yeah. Uh, and I do think of these as a classic. Like, these were only made from 1991 to 1994. Uh, they were based off of the Ford Ranger, which at the time was a pretty good little truck. And they, in fact, shared the entire front end, including the front dash, with that Ford Ranger. Um, and these were just really good little SUVs. They were. Now, this is a car that I think people don't think of as classics because at one point, especially in the 90s, they built a lot over those few years where you'd see them frequently and every day and they were used to haul the kids to school and the dogs to the park. But now they've almost completely disappeared off the road so that when you do see one, you're like, wow, look at that, a Gen 1 Ford Explorer. Yeah, in fact, the one I found, I mean, Look at this thing. Look how 90s that thing looks. That is so cool. And you can get it for less than $5,000. I think that it, you're going to find that a Ford Explorer is going to be such a good vehicle for the money. It's so slept on. They're, they're good off-road. They can tow a little bit. They're roomy. They're comfortable. You can get them with a manual transmission that's actually made by Mazda. Just It's kind of hard to beat. They're also very um, easy to... Uh, off-road and to customize you can get there's some aftermarket community to make them good off-road the engines also go forever it's the same engine that you'd find in the ranger of the air which is a four liter right around 155 maybe 160 horsepower some of the late ones but um automatics not so great yeah so i've had two i've had an automatic and i currently still have a manual version the automatic the transmission was starting to slip in third and fourth um but the manual is pretty solid this was also the first four-door SUV Ford ever built, somewhat sort of intended to be the replacement to the Bronco, at least the Bronco 2. And yeah, they're really, really good cars. Um, and I think especially finding a clean one would be a cool little investment. You're probably not going to lose money in the four to $5,000 range. So I think it's a really good choice. Yeah, absolutely. So now taking a little bit different of a tact, I wanted to go, what if you were looking for something from the Asian market, something a little more sporty? Uh, now I'm picking the last gen of the Honda Prelude, the fifth gen. Uh, and I'm specifically picking that because these are one of the few Preludes left that are actually still pretty affordable. The, uh, the earlier Preludes are starting to shoot up in value a lot like the other Hondas. Um, but the, the fifth gen Preludes are still pretty affordable just like this one I found here for 4,000 bucks. Yeah, front wheel drive, of course, which is somewhat derived from the Honda Accord. Um, now, what's the engine in this vehicle? Yeah, so this had a 2.2 liter four-cylinder, um, and it pumped out about 200 horsepower if you got the manual. If you got the automatic, you were penalized a little bit and got about five horsepower less, but relatively the same power. Um, now, being a front-wheel drive coupe, Honda knew back in the day making something this sporty that it wasn't going to handle like a lot of the rear-wheel drive coupes. So they actually, uh, if you were to get the SH model, they came out with this ATTS system, or otherwise known as the Active Torque Transfer System, which helped make it handle a lot more like a rear-wheel drive car. 
Now, earlier preloads could be had with four-wheel steering. Um, this was also a much more conservative design than the previous generation. And there was a Type S in Japan, which had more horsepower, which we didn't get in the States. Unfortunately, yeah. But it's getting to that point where you might be able to import one. But again, you're probably not going to find that for less than five grand, would be my guess. I think that these are fantastic vehicles, though. Um, they look great. They're going to be dirt reliable because they're a very simple powertrain. You can tune them up. You got a great little VTEC engine. Yeah, it's a good choice. And I'm not typically one to, to go for late 90s Japanese vehicles. And even I think that that's pretty cool. A little bit of practicality in there. Not horribly practical, but you got enough space for some uh, friends and activities there in the back. So, yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. So, next up. Now, this is something that we both have experience with, and we'll have a discussion here in a second. But it is still possible, getting harder, but still possible to get an air-cooled Volkswagen for under five, dollars $6,000. Now, of course, a Volkswagen built from the what, late 30s, essentially. Well, okay. there's a bit of a war in the mare, in the middle there. <laughs> Just but a little bit, like yeah. They built a few in 34, and then, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> um, uh, they built from, like, the essentially the 50s through the 70s here in the U.S. is when they sold them. And, of course, they, they built like 21 million worldwide. They were everywhere for a long time. But they're getting a little bit more rare on U.S. roads. Yeah, but if you keep an eye out, you can find some, like an example I found here, that actually looks pretty nice. I mean, they have a million miles put on the odometer. I think that's just basically saying they don't know what the miles are on it. Um, so for 5000 bucks, you're not going to get a perfect example. You're not going to get the most desirable, like the, the 50s and the early 60s ones. You're going to probably get like a late 60s or a 70s Beetle. But they're still great vehicles. They're uh, relatively cheap to buy, relatively cheap to fix. And the main reason being because parts are plentifully, plentifully available. Mm -hmm. And they're super easy to work on. Like I think you mentioned to me, because I have a clutch going out in mine, to remove the entire engine, it takes... Four bolts. Yeah, it's pretty easy. <laughs> and the engine is out. Yeah, I, I've had a couple of them. You've had, um, well, your Baja now that you own. The thing about Beetles is rust is a big issue. So a lot of them yeah. get rot knocked off the road for rust. And then a lot of them are kind of haphazardly restored. Um, actually, mine is haphazardly restored. Mine was a lot of money. <laughs> so they can, be, uh, they can be expensive to buy, especially in the convertibles and then early ones with split windows and stuff. They get expensive. But they are fantastic cars to drive. Um, as you mentioned, the part availability, every single part on a Volkswagen can be purchased. Not yeah. on every single model year, but at least in general. You can buy the pans. You can buy um, the, the fenders and the, uh, the, the, the deck lids. And anything you could ever need is out there. Um, rebuild kits for the engine are out there. Getting the engines rebuilt is super simple. Transaxles are a little bit more expensive to, to fix, but they're just phenomenal things to drive. Not very safe, not very good in the wintertime in terms of heating capability. But um, the, the little life hack I would recommend is the least desirable of the Beetles are the 71 and onward. They did a model called the Super Beetle which had McPherson front suspension, more trunk space. It looked like it was punching the nose a little bit, according to some Volkswagen purists. <laughs> but the Super Beetles command actually less money than the standard Beetles, and they are just as good. Um, exactly. Some Volkswagen purists are going to probably start typing at me. They had the same engines, basically the same interiors, um, slightly different pans with a little bit more room, but they're a lot cheaper because the purists get all snooty about them, and you have just as much fun in them. Well, and keep in mind, too, when you're buying a cheap Beetle, like, for example, I bought my Baja Bug for 25 500 bucks now mine was not running for $2,500 and I've spent another $2,500 to get it on the road um, but when you're buying a cheap beetle right you're not going to get the most desirable one but that's the whole point you can enjoy it you can drive it around you're not worried about getting nicks or scratches or door dings because it's just kind of an old 
beat up little bug, but it's still a great experience to have. And speaking of that, you have a new segment here called The Most Reliable Classics, and yours has not been very reliable. But I think yours has not been very reliable because of the modifications done to it. Yeah, somebody modified the heck out of my engine. Yeah. I, I would assume it's probably putting out close to twice as much horsepower as they came from factory, or maybe just a little bit less than that. And uh, it's left me stranded, I think, in my one year of ownership three, maybe four times. Although, let's be honest, probably <laughs> two of those times have been for the same stupid throttle cable issue. Exactly, yeah. I, for whatever reason, my mechanic just couldn't figure out how to attach the throttle cable to the gas pedal, and it just kept disconnecting itself. But it seems like such a minor little thing to break, but it leaves you stranded whenever it happens because you can't push the gas. You also have this crazy roller-style gas pedal aftermarket thing. Um, and then his clutch is going out as well, which is not a huge shot. Yeah. <laughs> now, from my experience, I've had two of them. I had a, a beige 71 Super, which was just fantastic. And then I have this red one, which is less fantastic. But really, there's just so little to break on a Volkswagen yeah. that it's it's very unlikely that anything that will break is going to leave you stranded, which you have, well, except for your modifications. Yeah. And um, – cost you a ton of money so um for example there's no cooling system to fail right because right. it's all air cooled uh, sure you can overheat a volkswagen do damage but it's somewhat unlikely especially if it's well maintained the carburetor you can buy a new carburetor for like 80 bucks right um alternators super cheap uh, distributors super cheap you get electronic ignition just like everything you can buy in a volkswagen is going to be there at your door in two days, and it's going to not cost you a lot of money. Plus, they were designed to be very simple vehicles to not only fix, but also simple vehicles in terms of staying on the road. So I think that they are surprisingly reliable. But that's not the only reliable classic on the list. Yeah, so obviously a lot of people will think of, you know, like old Hondas and old Toyotas as super reliable, right? If you want to go and get the Honda Prelude like we talked about earlier, yeah, of course, that's going to be reliable. But there are also a lot of vehicles like people that people are still sleeping on think of like the first gen jeep cherokees those four liters or pretty much any jeep with yep. that four liter engine in it super super reliable and bulletproof and you can get especially like the grand cherokees for dirt cheap yeah those four liters are incredible um also some of the nissan stuff like the turbocharged 300 zx's are quite complicated and hard to fix but like the earlier na cars especially in the really square generations they're i mean you often see them with 250 300 miles because they're pretty simple to keep on the road and you have that japanese reliability from the 80s and the 90s so yeah lots of good options corvettes too c4 yep. c5 i mean pretty much anything with gm's like 5.3 liter v8s back in in the what late 90s early 2000s the yep. Camaros, those were reliable. Or the you go Yukons, older, like the yeah. 5.7s. Um, and then, of course, like you said, the LSs, right? Those are all super, super durable. Except for yours, which has exploded the front diff. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I just recently coming back from Chicago visiting some family. Uh, was driving through Nebraska, and my front diff decided to explode, pretty much. And your 2500 Yukon. Yeah, my yeah. 8.1 liter 2500 Yukon. It, it locked up the front wheels, uh, which... Also broke the chain inside of the transfer case, which then cracked the transfer case. So my, my vehicle is currently sitting disabled, uh, waiting repairs in Nebraska. I'm guessing it's probably going to be at least a couple grand to get that thing back on the road. But, yeah, it's a bummer. You know, it's a bummer, but it's also a vehicle with 300,000 miles on it. So that, right. that front differential made it 300,000 miles before going. In fact, like I even... 
I've recorded a little picture of it going on, on to that 300,000 mile mark uh, shortly before it died. Before it exploded. Yeah. <laughs> I also, I want to give a shout out and Brendan's going to roll his eyes here, but old diesel Mercedes from the 80s. They just keep going. They just are lovely. Also old Peugeots from the 80s. They're also very, very durable if you want to go a little bit weirder. So, um, yeah. yeah. Of course, if you don't want a good driving experience, I mean, you could also buy a Camry, you know, yeah, sure. Honda Accords. They'll They're never pretty break. reliable. <laughs> yeah, this keeps going. All right, so what is next on the list, Brendan? So number four uh, would be the Chrysler Crossfire. And I know <laughs> this is going to be a bit of a polarizing vehicle. And in fact, uh, it was meant to be polarizing by the designers at the time because they took the inspiration from 1930s Art Deco when designing this vehicle. But this was specifically made from 2004 to 2008 and was a rear-wheel drive sports car by Chrysler, but underneath it was a Mercedes. Well, yeah, it was an SLK. Um, they had this crazy, like, silvery interior, which is pretty funky. Jeremy Clarkson famously said that the coupe looks like a dog um, doing its business, right? <laughs> but I think you're actually pretty spot on with this choice because they are very cool cars to look at. Right, not yeah. amazing to drive, especially by modern day standards. But they're cool to look at. They're convertible. Um, they had an SRT version, which is going to run you more money. But you could get them in either manual or automatic versions, right? Yeah. Uh, so the SRT versions were automatics only, unfortunately. Oh, but I didn't know that. yeah, but if you did get the the 3.2 liter V6, which is what came in the vast majority of them, put out 215 horsepower, and you could get it with a six speed manual. So pretty cool little car, and. And one point I like to make, too, is when cars, when this car came out, it was lambasted for its design, right? But you know what else is lambasted for its design is now highly desirable is the clown shoe. The yeah. BMW uh, M Coupes, everybody hated them when they first came out, just like they hated this Chrysler Crossfire, and now it's a classic. Mm -hmm. And I think that these Chrysler Crossfires, because they're so unique and so different, that they are going to be a future classic. Uh, you know, you might not be that far off. I can't believe we're talking about this, but these are pretty interesting designs, actually. They're just very unique. Love them or hate them. Um, and I, they're just kind of fun. I agree. And the one you found looks pretty good. 180,000 miles, but it's a manual transmission with the coupe. It's got the deployable spoiler. Uh, yeah, I, I actually like it. That's, a, that's an interesting choice, Brendan. But I'm <laughs> on board with it. But cool. the next choice... Wow, what a, what a vehicle. What have you chosen for us here? So uh, I wanted to go back to do an off-roader. I wanted to get something Japanese. Off-roader. Yeah, off-roader. Um, now, everybody speaks in, uh, glowingly about the Suzuki Samurais back in the day. Every, those are classics now. Everybody loves them. They've, they've gone up in value. But a lot of people forget about the Suzuki X90, which is what replaced that Suzuki Samurai. Yeah, now this was um, kind of a weird choice, but this was like a, kind of got a reputation for being a little bit of a hairdresser's car, but it was a convertible-ish, T-top-inspired, roly-poly, four-wheel drive with an actual four-wheel drive system and a, a, lot of, um, a, a lot of 90s injected in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you look at the seats, like most of the seats on the inside are quintessential 90s. Like, they just look fantastic, right? They look like the bus bench seat from back in the 90s. I love them, honestly. So here's the thing. Like, a couple of years ago, we would have put a Samurai on our list because a Samurai, um, it's it's, it's a better four-wheel drive. It's smaller. It's sure. square. It's bulky. It's got solid axles, right? It's very, very, very 
durable. But the issue with samurais is they got expensive, but the world figured them out. So like a nice samurai is going to run you ten, twelve thousand dollars which is what it would have cost new, by the way, which is kind of funny. Uh, but a nice X90 is not going to cost you a lot of money whatsoever because yeah. they're kind of just weird and funky and they fly under the radar. But finding one, I'm surprised you found one. Um, kind yeah, it's hard not, to find. It's not easy to find them, so you're going to have to look. And you, you may not be able to find one in a manual for under $5,000, but they're out there uh, if, you, if you're patient and you look. Now, these were a pretty short-lived vehicle because they were so weird. They just not did not do very well for Suzuki because they – took the Samurai and took away a lot of the practicality by making it a, a more coupe-like design. I mean, I guess with a T-top, but it didn't have a traditional hatchback with a rear seat. It was a two-seat only. And in turn, they only made it from 1995 to 1997. And this was based on the Vitara, which is also known as like the Geo Tracker underpinnings. So it, it was pretty much the same thing as buying a Geo Tracker, but you're getting, I think, a much more interesting vehicle. Would you get a Geo Tracker? I would. That actually, Geo Tracker was my very first vehicle. Really, it was a Geo Tracker. Geo Tracker, and two weeks later, I rolled it into a ditch. Yeah, that's what happened to every Geo Tracker. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that the X90 kind of got a bad rap, but it's a durable, fun little car, convertible, and certainly be the only one to have one. Yeah, I mean, they weren't powerful. It's only a 1.6 liter four cylinder with about 95 horsepower. Uh, and the thing that I think is interesting is a few years ago, Motor Trend came out with a list of the worst cars made in the 90s, and this was number one. Oh, no. You can also, <laughs> I, I know you can have some pictures here, but the Vitaros as well, right? These are pretty darn good too, a little bit more boring. But sure. essentially the Suzuki version of a tracker. Yeah. But yeah, also very long lasting and kind of funky now. Exactly. Yeah. So if you want something a little more practical, a little more common, you can get these Vitaras under five grand all day long. And they're pretty decent little vehicles and good off-road too. Uh, here, I think they were sold as a sidekick, actually. Oh, were they? Yeah. I know. Okay. Eventually, we did get the Vitara, but I think the early ones are called the sidekick. Okay. So next up is a car near and dear to us. Wow. What a deal you found on this. This is... The E28 generation of 5 Series, so the second generation. Brendan's found one here for just $3,000. That's why. <laughs> 298,000 miles, Brendan. Yeah, 298,000 miles. And, and again, I picked something high miles because I wanted to prove a point, that these early BMWs are really, really reliable when you take care of them. Yeah, these are great cars. Now, so the 3 Series version of the um, 1980s BMW is called the E30. M3s are 40, 50, 60, they have $70,000. Hugely expensive. But even like a standard 325 now is going to run you 15 grand for a good one. Even yeah. a 318, like a little four banger, is going to run you 10 to $12,000 for a good one. But the 5 Series, same generation of car, similar design um, kind of motives, are going to run you like, in, in this case, bottom end three grand, but a really good one's probably going to run you. Um, 10 to 15, and then kind of a rare one, like the one we're selling is probably going to run you about 20. But they're just such great values and very underlooked or overlooked. Yeah, I mean, this is the second generation of the 5 Series. And in my opinion, it's probably one of the best-looking cars that BMW has ever made. It's really got a unique design. Now, this is the American version. Um, Tommy's version that we do have pictures of as well uh, is the European version, so you don't get those same crash bumpers. These, if you are able to find one of the European versions without those bumpers, are quite a looker. Yeah, they are, especially with the asymmetrical headlights like ours has here, the wider wider outside lights. These are just such great cars, and they drive great because BMW, they managed to do this um, 
and no car has really managed to do the sense, but they, they, they're so comfortable, and yet they handle really well. So, like, unlike the Bonneville SSEI, let's be honest, which is very comfortable, but was kind of like a waterbed on, on a... Sure. With a fat man on a waterbed in the turns. <laughs> um, the, uh, the E28 5 Series are tight. They can be made in the race cars. They handle so well. They had a choice of engines. Um, this one, I think, that you found as a, a 535. Ours also is a 535. And then, of course, the M5s are really expensive. But... Um, Automatic and manuals. Now, the one you found is an auto, which is definitely going to hurt its value. Yeah, exactly. So for under $5,000, it's going to be tough to find one in good condition with a manual transmission. You might find some out there, but it's you're going to have to search really hard. But in autos, they're just not that valuable, honestly. You can find them fairly easily. Um, it's just a matter of how well have they been, they been to take, uh, how well have they been taken care of? Because that's the key, right? When you're buying an older German car, um, they can be reliable if you maintain them properly. You yeah, know, whereas right. Toyotas are reliable regardless of maintenance. Um, older German cars can be reliable. And, you know, the other thing that a lot of people think or forget to think about is these engines were what made BMW such an iconic brand. These straight sixes sounded so good, put out a decent amount of power for how small they were, and were very reliable and easy to maintain as well. I mean, we just took yours out for a test drive, and man, I mean, that thing sounds as good as a 911. I'm not, I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent there, but it, it really does. They're such a good sounding engine. They do. Yeah, you're 100% right. And speaking of ours, if you want to buy ours, it's up for auction right now over at tflbids.com. So um, we are selling it. Euro or a Japanese market car actually brought to the US, converted to manual transmission. It's in fantastic shape, like 125,000 miles on it. So check it out over at tflbids.com. If you want to own a super rare, it's actually an M535, which they never sold in the States. It's a super unusual car. Yeah, I think this, if you're talking about just the cars that are stateside, this may actually be more rare than getting oh, an M5. for sure, yeah. Honestly, yeah. I mean, an M5s, you're going to spend twice as much money as you would on this guy. Yeah. Um, and keep in mind, too, uh, if you were to buy this driving down the road, very few people are going to know you're not driving an M5. Because <laughs> it looks identical. <laughs> it, it does. It looks so close to one. 100%. So we're going to finish it up with the car that I am very curious about because I don't know much about these, but you put it on the list. What are we looking at, Brendan? <laughs> So this is one that I am actually actively looking for. Oh, gosh. Um, a Buick Roadmaster sedan. So they made them in the wagon, and I know those wagons are super, super cool. But the wagons, well, people have caught on. Uh, you're not going to get one for under what, five grand. What does a good wagon go for, you know? Wagons, you're looking, I would say, minimum seven to $8,000. And <sighs> some of them are even touching up into the... The high teens, low twenties nowadays, wow. uh, in good shape. Um, but these were made from 1991 to 1996 in wagon form. But in sedan form, you had to uh, wait till 1992. Uh, the wagons. Uh, another cool thing about the wagons is they actually had a third row seat that was rear facing. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it was a little flip-out third-row seat that was rear-facing that you could fold down if you didn't want to use it. But these were a rear-wheel drive boat on wheels this was kind of the last gasp of the american luxury barges and they were also made as the chevy caprice you know which is if you got like a chevy caprice ss from uh the mid 90 mid to late 90s 
those things are actually quite valuable and hard to find uh, in good shape. They also came uh, as a Cadillac as well, which I, I think you can find in that similar price range. But specifically the Buick Roadmaster, you can find these fairly commonly for under 5000 bucks still. Now, are we talking V8 or V6 in this car? So this was a V8. Um, the first... Two years of it were just, you know, your standard small block V8 putting out a whopping 180 horsepower. But if you're able to find one that's a 1994 through 1996, which this, I believe, is a 1995. So it does have the uh, basically the same LT1 engine from the Corvette that put out 300 horsepower in a Corvette. They just detuned this a little bit because they didn't want to make it as fast putting out 260 horsepower. But a lot of people have said that they could easily get that 40 horsepower back in these things and make them into uh, pretty quick boats. So, um, I, so okay. Um, it, it is very beige, the one you found. <laughs> the one I found, yes, is beige. They didn't all come in beige. Some of them even had, like, the the fake wood paneling on them. Even and, in the sedans? Yep. Wow. Uh, I think, so. well, maybe I'm wrong on that. I know I've seen it in the wagons, maybe not in the sedans. Interesting. I don't know. Some of them did have these Landau tops, which are not great, to be honest yeah, with you. Um, but the other thing that I think is interesting is you could order these with a towing package. <laughs> a towing package? You could order them with a towing package where you could tow up to 5,000 pounds. Oh, my goodness. In one of these. And if you got the towing package with the wagon, they could tow up to 7,000 pounds. Seven grand. And they did that by adding a 293 rear axle uh, and a limited slip differential. <laughs> Jeez, dude. That's crazy. Yeah. So... Um, towing rig here is what you're telling me yeah it's a towing rig it's a soft cushy ride and it's quick and can peel out those rear tires there how you can go you how that? could you not go with that yeah. so of all the vehicles on the list which one are you taking home i'm taking home the roadmaster if, if, if i could just have the one vehicle right i'm gonna choose something that i can take on long drives and that can also be pretty quick and think about it those those lt1 v8s you can tune them pretty easily. Just like you could a Corvette or a Camaro back in the day, you could put the same tuning on these, except you've got four doors and a soft ride. So why the Roadmaster and not the E55 Mercedes? Well, I think I think because parts availability, honestly. The E55 Mercedes is going to be a bit more rare. You know, you're going to have something that people won't necessarily have seen before when you roll up in it. But the Roadmaster, the parts out there are plentiful. The cost of keeping them on the road is dirt cheap. Um, and they're just a bit more comfortable of a ride and a bit more spacious. Um, the very interesting perspective here. So I, uh, I think I'm going to go... you got to consider... Of all the cars on the so I'm leaning Volkswagen, but it's going to be really hard to find a good Volkswagen for 5K. Exactly. Just think about it. If you have 5000 bucks, and that's all you have to go out and buy one of these 10 cars, you know, what's the one that's going to speak to you? And you could only have one car. Right. right? This has got to get you to and from work every day. This has got to take you to see the family on holidays, up to the mountains, Everything you want to do with it, what's the one car you'd get? You know, I think, believe it or not, I am going to take the first-gen Ford Explorer 
That's going to be wow. my choice. Yeah, I do. That, that, that really surprises me. <laughs> yeah, so you have one. I do. Did you sell it yet? No. Yeah, it's just sitting it? in the mechanic. Uh, just haven't had him do anything to it yet. I think but. they're pretty, especially in the two-door configuration, these Explorers are really pretty cool. And with the manual transmission, they're kind of fun to drive, and they have just the most 80s-ish interior. Plus, if I'm only allowed one car, it's going to four-wheel drive, so it's going to be good yeah. to snow. Um, it's fairly safe-ish for hauling folks and families and whatever. And it's um, going to be very, very, very reliable. So that that's why, and it's going to be comfy too. Um, and you just don't see these anymore. So I think I think Explorer is going to be, that's going to be my choice, believe it or not. You know, I think that's a pretty good choice. I I can respect that because it's it's a slept on vehicle. Um, they've definitely bottomed out on value. So if you buy one for this one's listed for forty five hundred bucks. You drive it around for a few years, you could probably sell it for 4500 bucks, maybe even a little bit more. So you're not going to lose any money on it, and you're just going to have a cool vehicle to enjoy. So one other topic we should talk about before we close out, and you actually wrote this down here in the notes, yeah. how to avoid getting scammed. Yeah, so uh, that's a pretty uh, big thing that's happening nowadays. Um, I sell a lot of cars on Facebook, and... You know, I, I buy some cars on Facebook, and it, it's pretty common to see that where you're going to get messages from people that uh, aren't living in the country that just want to get your money and not sell you a car or not buy your car, depending on if you're buying or selling. Uh, and some of the, the common ways that I've found to distinguish whether it's a scammer or a true genuine buyer, if they send you a text file that's an image <laughs> that's the number one thing that I'm seeing nowadays is they will literally send me like, I'm interested in buying your car, but it's an image. So it's not like actual typed out text. That should be a number one indicator of this is not a real interested <laughs> that's buyer or seller. I have. That, yeah. I, almost every car I list, I get one of those. Wow. Yeah. Another thing that I see is somebody that just messages you and then immediately wants your phone number yeah. without any context. Sometimes I will give out my phone number, but only after having like a more in-depth conversation where I can tell that I'm talking to a real person. But, so, yeah. so that's selling a car. When it comes to buying a car... Um, the opposite happens. So typically what I do is I'll find like this Explorer on Craigslist. And if there's no phone number, I'll email and be like, hey, I saw your, your Explorer on um, Craigslist. I would love to chat. Please give me a ring. And I'll give them my phone number to make sure they're a real person on the other side of the conversation. Right? I want to make sure that the seller is a real person. Um, I'm, I only deal with clean titles. So you've had some pretty good luck with salvage in the past or, or rebuilt, well, I should say. Yeah. I mean, I've I've had, I think, two yeah uh, rebuilt titles i tend to avoid those personally um if i mean if you're buying it just to enjoy it you're going to save probably 20 percent off the cost of what a vehicle normally goes for but thoroughly check that thing out because you don't know who did the repairs on it it's a little bit of a risk but if if it's been repaired by a reputable shop it might be a decent buy but yeah anyways um oh another one i try to yeah. avoid cars that were just purchased and then immediately getting sold again um, yeah. Like I see that a lot. Like people, someone will buy a car, clearly it'll still be on temp tags here in Colorado. <laughs> and then that almost always means it won't pass emissions. Exactly. Because here in Colorado, you get temp tags and you go get it emissions tested. And then if it fails, a lot of folks will just stick it right back online. Yeah, that's a big tell. If you see temp tags in the pictures, uh, run. Yeah. Gen generally. Uh, the other thing too is if you open the trunk... Uh, and you see some bottles of fluids in there, uh, that's a telltale sign of things that are going on. Like if you see bottles of coolant and bottles of oil sitting in there, 
it's probably got a coolant leak and it's probably got an oil leak and that's why they keep them in the trunk of the vehicle. I mean, you know, you can buy some classics where they're owned by a 90-year-old guy sure. that does all his own maintenance and maybe he leaves them sitting in there, but the vast majority of the cars you're buying for 5 grand they're not going to have that in there, but if it's in there, it's something's wrong. <laughs> and a top tip, and I think we both agree with this, Brendan kind of found these cars all over the country. you got to be willing to travel for some of these deals, especially yeah. if you live in the Midwest and everything for under five grand has no floors in it and no uh, rocker <laughs> panels. Like, spending the money on the plane ticket to go to Kansas City or to go to uh, – Kansas City is a terrible example – to go to Greensboro <laughs> or to go to Los Angeles and then road trip at home is always a good bet. Yeah, and, I mean, we live here in Colorado, and what I've found is – in some states, cars are just cheaper in general. Like, uh, I will fly down to Texas sometimes to buy cars because for whatever reason, cars in Texas are just cheaper than they are here in Colorado, especially vehicles with all-wheel drive. In Houston, they don't need that all-wheel drive, so I could fly down there, drive it up, and get a pretty good discount. There you go. Well, guys, let us know what you think of our list in the comment section below. Yeah, and thanks for checking us out. I've been Brendan. I've been Tommy. Check out the TFL Classics <laughs> for more of our classic content. Yeah. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.